Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from America Media for saints and sinners. You can join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church and our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Great to be with you, Ashley. Great to be here. We have a really challenging and unique episode for you guys this week. Zach, you want to give us some some background on this? Sure. Pope Francis has been calling for peace constantly uh, in Israel and Palestine since October 7th. And like he often does, he brought that concern for peace uh, to a very personal level. On November 22nd, Pope Francis met at the Vatican with 12 relatives of some of the hostages held by Hamas in Gaza for about 20 minutes. And on the same morning, he also met with 10 Palestinians who have been affected by the war in Gaza, including some who have had relatives killed there. Right. So we are talking today with Rachel Goldberg. She was one of the family members of hostages who met with Pope Francis. So she had the opportunity to bring the story of her son, Hirsch Goldberg Pollen, to the Pope. She showed Pope Francis a picture of her son, Hirsch, and also told the story of his kidnapping by Hamas. So it's a really poignant conversation about her son, about meeting with Pope Francis and many others in the two months since the attack on Israel. And we also talk about how her faith has been challenged, but also has sustained her in this extremely, extremely difficult time. So stick around. Here's our conversation with Rachel Goldberg. So, Rachel, we're talking to you two months after Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Um, And I know in the 61 days since your son was taken hostage, you've spoken to the Pope and the president and countless others about Hirsch. Um, But I'm hoping that you can start today by by telling that story again, telling us and our listeners about Hirsch and your family in the years before the horrific events of October 7th. Sure. So... John, my husband, and I were both born and raised in Chicago, and Hirsch actually was born in Berkeley, California, where we were living for a few years before he was born. And when he was about almost four years old, we moved to Richmond, Virginia. We were there for almost four years. We ended up also having two more children, two daughters, uh, Libby and Orly. And in 2008, the summer before Hirsch turned eight years old, we moved to Jerusalem. We are a Jewish observant family, meaning a religious family. We observe the Sabbath. We keep a kosher household. I pray every morning. We are a very ritualized family. Hirsch is our oldest and only son. He has always been obsessed with reading. He started reading. He was one of those like weird early readers and then a very voracious reader. So by the time he was five or six, he was reading things, you know, that were way above that reading level. And so he gained a curiosity for the world and for people and for trivia and for geography at a very young age. And he's always had wonderlust. He always knew from a young age that he was going to want to travel when he got older for a very long time. He has a great sense of humor that's like a dark, witty, sarcastic sense of humor that's not mean, which is kind of hard. It's hard to pull that off. And he's a very respectful person. He's wild about soccer. 
um, wild about music and music festivals and traveling, as I mentioned. He went this summer for nine weeks with one teeny tiny backpack by himself uh, to six different countries in Europe, going to music festivals in each place, meeting people. He loved meeting people from all different backgrounds. He's a big pursuer of peace. The soccer team that he is part of the fan club has as their number one objective um, coexistence activities with the Arab community here in Jerusalem. So he was always very active with that. And we just had a normal, normal, typical family. I mean, we have, you know, we have a foot in both worlds, meaning John and I moved to Israel when we were almost 40. So culturally, you know, we're still very much American. Hirsch was almost eight. Libby and Orly were both born in America. All of the grandparents, all the cousins, all the aunts and uncles, everyone's in America, but we're here. So we also have a foot here. So we only speak English at home. So that's kind of our family and family life. So that was all before October 7th. Yeah. So it sounds like Hirsch being at a, a music festival is, you know, not out of the ordinary or anything. This seemed to be like something he loved to do. Uh, could, could you tell us about when you last saw him and, and heard from him? It's actually a little bit interesting because on October 4th, which was a Wednesday, Hirsch went up north by himself to go to a music festival that was up north in Israel. He was supposed to be at that music festival from Wednesday the 4th until October 8th, Sunday. But on Friday afternoon the 6th, he actually called us and said, oh, it's so upsetting. The police just came and they said our permit isn't the right kind of permit for the weekend. And so they're closing down this massive music festival in the North. So I'm coming home. And I said, great. And he said, so I'll come to synagogue with you guys tonight. Cause it was Friday. It was going to be Friday night. And as I mentioned, like we always go to synagogue on the Sabbath as a family, he said, so I'll go to synagogue with you guys and I'll go to dinner with you guys. We were going to friends afterwards who live by the synagogue. He said, and then Honor and I are going to go out and do something fun. Honor uh, was one of his best friends from childhood. And we said, fine. So he came home Friday afternoon from being up at a different music festival, showered, got ready for synagogue. And we left uh, the five of us and went to synagogue, had a wonderful time. It also coincided. It wasn't just the Jewish Sabbath. It was also a Jewish holiday that celebrates when we finish reading all of the Bible, all of the Old Testament, the Torah. It's called Simchat Torah, happiness of the Torah. And we wind the whole entire book back to the beginning and everyone dances with the actual Torah scrolls. So Friday night, he danced with the Torah. All of us danced with the Torah. Then we went to dinner and around 11 o'clock, he had brought his camping backpack with him. He kissed me goodbye. He kissed John goodbye. He hugged our hostess, which I was proud of him. Like I made a mental note <laughs> of like, that is the right thing to do. You know, not all 23 year olds would do that. He had just on October 3rd turned 23 and he said, okay, I'll see you guys tomorrow night, meaning Saturday night. And he left to go pick up on her. I knew they were camping somewhere, but I didn't know where. And that's the last time I physically saw Hirsch in person. Saturday morning, I was in my kitchen, having a cup of tea, my husband had already left early for synagogue. It was early. He left around 7.30. Around 8 o'clock as I was having my tea, 
bomb sirens started to go off in Jerusalem, which is unusual. So I went quickly to wake up my daughters who were still sleeping and we got into our bomb shelter. Every apartment in Jerusalem, in most of Israel, has a, a bomb shelter built into the apartment. So we went into our bomb shelter and the protocol is you wait 10 minutes and if you don't hear an explosion, then you can come out. So after 10 minutes, the girls and I came out and even though normally on the Jewish Sabbath, I never use my phone, but I knew it was an emergency, a life and death emergency possibly because there must have been bombs dropping somewhere and I knew the boys were sleeping outside. So I ran and I turned on my phone. This was at about 8.20 and immediately on my screen, two WhatsApps popped up as soon as I turned the phone on. They had both come in consecutively at 8.11. The first ones, and it was to the group that I have with just Hirsch and John, my husband. I have a group together, the three of us. The first one said, I love you. And the second one said, I'm sorry. And so I immediately, you know, my throat closed and my stomach clenched up because I thought something terrible is happening. I obviously tried to call him back. He didn't answer. I wrote three quick WhatsApps in a row. Are you okay? Tell me you're okay. I'll leave my phone on. Tell me you're okay. Those have never been read. Um, and it was a horrible realization when we finally were able to you know, initially, we didn't even know where they were. Um, we found out that they were at the Nova Music Festival. We found out, um, you know, over the next couple of days, what unfolded with Hirsch and Honor specifically. Right away, we could see online, you know, kids were filming the massacre that was taking place there, which ended up claiming 364 young people's lives at that music festival, there were about 3,000 young people there. It, you know, ironically was called the Festival of Unity and Light. And you can imagine the type of person that that type of festival would attract, you know, like people who are into that kind of, you know, unity, crunchy, granola kind of uh, population. And what we ended up finding out is that Hirsch and Honor and two other kids ran to a car when the shooting first started happening, and they tried to escape in a car. The problem was that Hamas was blocking the main road going north and south. So when cars were approaching at a certain point, they were just at point blank range with machine guns shooting everybody in all the cars that were coming toward them. So a bunch of the cars immediately stopped. And there's a picture of, I don't know, it's maybe 50 cars that were just on the road with the doors flung open and the kids all went running out. Now, there are bomb shelters next to public bus stops in the south of Israel, because unfortunately, there are times where there are rockets being launched. And so you have these outdoor above ground bomb shelters. So it turns out that 29 of these young music lovers mushed themselves into this windowless concrete bomb shelter, which my husband, John, just went last week to actually see the bomb shelter for the first time. And he measured it and it's eight feet by five feet. So you can picture how tiny that is. And there are 29 people mashed in. And first Tomas came and was throwing in hand grenades which Honor was standing in the doorway and, and the eyewitnesses who did survive told us that he kept picking them up and throwing them back out, which is absolutely incredible because 
I've since learned that you have a four and a half second uh, window from when you pull the pin on a hand grenade until it explodes. And he managed to throw out seven, but three did get in and exploded in this tiny windowless room with all these people mashed together. And there was instantly a lot of carnage. Then they came in and shot an RPG into the room. And then they came in and were spraying machine gun fire. Two of the witnesses told us it was extremely hot and very smoky and dusty. And there were a few minutes, like a lull of a few minutes. And it was very quiet. At least that's what they were telling us. I don't know if it's that after such loud, you know, explosions going on that they couldn't hear. It might have been that they couldn't hear. Most of the kids in there were dead right away. A lot of them were dying and badly wounded. And some lucky ones were trapped under the dead bodies. And we we call them lucky because they call themselves lucky because uh, they were able to pretend that they were dead. And Hirsch and two other young men were slumped against the wall, wounded, but very clearly still alive. Hamas walked in after the dust settled and at gunpoint said to those three boys, stand up. And when Hirsch stood up, all of the people who did witness what was happening told us that they saw that his left arm from the elbow down had been blown off, that he had tied some sort of bandage or something, a tourniquet of some sort around his arm during that you know, few minute lull. And they all said that all three of them walked out completely silent, which we really couldn't believe because I thought, my gosh, if your arm's blown off and you've just witnessed 19 people getting blown to bits, including Honor, who was killed in the doorway. This is one of his childhood best friends. Several days later, we were interviewed by Anderson Cooper on CNN. And at the end of the interview, Anderson said to us, you guys, I'm going to call you. And we thought, why is he calling us? Because we had talked to a lot of press and nobody ever said, I'll call you once it's over. And he said to us, I have footage. I have video footage of Hirsch being abducted. And we hadn't seen anything like that. And he had done a documentary about the Nova Music Festival. And he was looking at the location of the festival. And he went to some of the bomb shelters. And there were Israeli soldiers cleaning out some of the bomb shelters. And they found a GoPro that had fallen off the helmet of one of the Hamas people. So they were playing the footage for Anderson Cooper's videographer. And so they got a lot of footage off of this GoPro camera. And Anderson recognized Hirsch from while we were talking along the side of the screen. They had asked us for photographs of Hirsch pre-October 7th. And he recognized him. And so the footage didn't necessarily tell us any more information. It did confirm that he did calmly walk. I'm sure he was in complete shock and traumatized, but he does walk on his own two feet. He gets himself up onto the truck. He is left-handed and his left hand was gone. He uses his non-dominant hand to get himself up. And when he turned to sit down, we see the stump where his left arm used to be and you see a piece of jagged bone sticking out. And that is the last time that we visually saw Hirsch. 
His last phone cell signal was um, picked up at 1025 in the morning inside of Gaza. And we've been living on another planet of despair and anguish and terror and trauma since then. And I know from reading all the interviews you've done that you've I don't know if channel is the right word for the despair and trauma, but you you haven't been silent or sitting still for the last 60 days. So I'm wondering, how are you able to pick up the pieces and keep walking after that experience, that experience that's that's not over? It's every day, all the time. Right. So the first answer is, I don't know how I'm able to actually do it. The second answer is, it is actually a real primal maternal and paternal, because John feels the same drive of, it's almost this innate animalistic need to try to save his life. You know, when, if you've ever hiked and, you know, you run into a bear and if there's a bear with like a baby bear, you're supposed to, you know, really run and make yourself big because that animal thinks you're coming after its baby and they're going to do whatever they need to do to protect it. And I think that there is a very primal piece of me that is constantly thinking, I will run to the end of the earth for this child. I'm going to turn over every single stone. I'm going to throw a dart in every direction. I will talk to anyone who's open to talking to me. I don't know what's right and I don't know what's wrong. Um, But sitting and waiting for someone to come and help us was not an option. Within two hours on October 7th, we had set up our own situation room. It's still going on right now. That was Dahlia, who you met before, is part of our team. And we've just been trying desperately to save his life. The good news, if there is any good news, I don't even know if this is good news, it's optimistic possibly, is that some of the hostages who were released last week said that the first stop that they made when they were kidnapped was at hospitals in Gaza and that they were treated. And so we're hoping that because Hirsch, you know, looks, he was conscious and he was bleeding, but not crazy, you know, crazy bleeding that he got the treatment that he needed. And we have spoken to so many different trauma surgeons, specialists who explain that the surgery he would have needed is actually a pretty standard surgery that any general surgeon could do. So that's what we pray for. In the 61 days, you've been talking to a lot of people, as you said, sort of anyone that will talk to you. But one of those people was Pope Francis. I'm just curious, uh, how did that come about? Um, I'm wondering if you could just tell that story a little bit, what being with him was like. Sure. So we had this lovely man named Roberto who came from the Vatican News to speak to us, to interview us in our apartment. We had a very nice interview. And at the end, he said, actually, would you like to send a message directly to the Holy Father? And I said, sure. And he gave me the microphone. And I gave a very short message because I had heard Pope Francis speak about the hostages. And I I think he's a very unifying figure. And I think, obviously, he's an extremely wise, learned man. And I like the idea that he feels that everyone is God's children. and so. I felt I just thanked him for the message that he had put out there and was hopeful that, you know, it could have some influence. 
And then the following week, the Vatican reached out to, I think, the foreign ministry and said, you know, we would like to extend an invitation for, I think it was like 12 hostage families to to come, like representatives from 12 of the families to come to meet with him. And so, you know, first of all, I felt like extremely blessed and grateful to have that opportunity, especially because I'm aware that there are 1.3 billion Catholics in the world who probably would, you know, give anything to have that opportunity. So, of course, I was felt so honored to be asked. It was like not a question. And the actual meeting was um, pretty quick, but I was able to share with him the video of Hirsch being abducted and explain what happened to him. And the other families were able to explain a bit about what happened to their loved ones. And he said something to me that really gave me such consolation because what I had been going through for those first 45, 48 days, I can't remember exactly what day I met him on, I could check. I started to sort of lose faith in humanity because of what happened on the 7th, which was so traumatic that it started to make me not really understand and and made me sort of start to lose faith in people. And he said something very simple. He said, what you have experienced is terrorism, which is the absence of humanity. And all of a sudden it was like he reframed it for me and I could have faith again in humanity because what happened was the absence of humanity. And it really brought me a lot of comfort to hear that from him. And, you know, after he spoke to us, he spoke to a group of Palestinians, which I thought was really important. You know, it's like he is a very universalizing and unifying figure, and he has a lot of influence. And I really admire what he tries to do in the world. And in addition, some of those families I hadn't met yet. You know, there are 240 families, but they're from almost 30 different countries. This was before some were released. The age span is the youngest child is 10 months old. The oldest person was 87. The people who were being held are Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. People don't realize that. And so what was interesting was I ended up befriending some of these people who were also visiting the Pope with me. And the following week, which was last week, is when some of the the hostages were released, women, children, babies. And I got to see these people go back to their families, and I had met the families in Rome. So it even made the, you know, my association now with my Rome visit is very positive, because real good and hope came out of it. You mentioned having your faith in humanity tested. I'm wondering how your your faith in God and your Jewish faith has been tested or or a source of strength during these last two months. It's been really interesting because it is at times like this where we all, you know, when you're going through something unimaginable, when you really are feeling what's happening in my world. And I have continued praying every morning and I say Psalms throughout the day, which Psalms are really helpful, right? I always say Psalms are like a self-help book 
I mean, you really can go through and find when you're feeling like, hallelujah, praise the Lord, we have for that. And when you're feeling like, oh my gosh, what? where are you? Like, why? Why is this happening? We have words for that. And that's important. And it's validating. And so, um, you know, I do pray in the morning and I'm, I'm very cognizant of which part of the prayers I'm saying for Hirsch. And I do call out to God. My kids kind of make fun of me any pre-October 7th also, but I'm very, I'm talking to God. I've got, you know, my hands are up in the air and, you know, it is really challenging. And on the other hand, I also feel like having the conversation with God is part of the relationship saying, why, why are you making this, this child suffer? Why are you making us suffer? But that's belief. Having a conversation is being in a relationship. And so my faith is still there. And my curiosity of saying, you know, why, why is this happening? I mean, such horrible things happened on October 7th. As you guys know, I mean, this is part of being a religious person is saying it doesn't make sense. And I still believe, you know, that by the way, there's a very famous poem. I should look it up for you, but it was, it was written inside of a cattle car, uh, like that used to take people to Auschwitz. And the last line is, uh, you know, the, I think it says something like, I believe in the sun, even when it's not shining. And I believe in the, you know, whatever it is, even when it's dark. And it says, and I believe in God, even when he is silent. And uh, that's like a very powerful, you know, poem that was found inside of a cattle car on the way to Auschwitz. So, you know, as religious people, we struggle, we see hard things happen, horrible things happen in this world. And, and our job is to figure out how do you reconcile and keep going on within that. You mentioned getting the chance to meet with other families of hostages, and it, it's. I can tell from like your Facebook page, you've been meeting with lots of different groups throughout this time. What what has that experience been like for you? It's very validating when I meet with uh, with other hostage families because, as I've said, you know, we live in this other galaxy. Like I, I kind of appear normal, right? I I, I look normal. I'm speaking. I'm functioning. But it's really a bifurcated existence because I'm in agony at all times, but I also have to be a human being. First of all, I have to function because I have two other children. I have to function because I have to save him. And I can't save him if I'm on the floor in a puddle all day long. So when I need those moments to go be in a puddle, I just say to the team, I'll be right back. And, you know, if I have to have a good cry or a scream into a pillow, you know, I do it. And then I wipe my face and say, we've got work to do, you know, get going. It's interesting. This past Sunday, I met for the first time with this really interesting group of women, Muslim Americans who were visiting from America. And, um, they gave me a lot of hope because I think that it's hard in their communities to show support right now to either the Jewish community or 
anyone who's associated with Israel. And I understand that that's that that in their communities is a is a hard thing to do. So I thought it was super brave and it gave me a lot of hope. And then I realized that it was Advent starting on Sunday. And that I remember because uh, I had a Christian roommate in college and she had an Advent calendar and she explained to me about Advent. And I knew that the first week of Advent that the theme is hope. And it made me, you know, and I thought, wow, this is great because like I'm having hope from this other branch of religion and hope is the Christian theme. And at the end, tomorrow night starts the holiday of Hanukkah, which in Judaism is a festival about miracles and light when things are dark. And so, you know, that all those things galvanized inside of me and I'm trying to stay as positive as I can. Well, Rachel, you're in our prayers. Thank you so much for um, the bravery that that you've shown and you have shown these 61 days. Um, we're praying for you, your family, and for, for Hirsch and for a safe return. Amen. And I really hope that the next time I see you, he's sitting next to me and he can talk to you himself. But I really believe in the power of prayer. So your prayers are very appreciated. And I, we've had a ton of people, really hundreds of thousands of Christians and Catholics have reached out to us who are praying for Hirsch and for the other hostages, and it means the world to us. So please continue. We will. Thanks so much. Thank you. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Michael O'Brien, Delaney Coyne, and Kevin Christopher Robles, who is also our sound engineer. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on X and Instagram at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.